I wonder if you've ever had a time, I'm pretty confident that uh, you have had times like this, where you've sat back, well not sat back in a kind of time of relaxation, but you've been pulled up and thinking, how did I get here? What went wrong? Uh, Perhaps you realise that you are in a wrong place. Not just in terms of being lost, but perhaps being in a bad place. And somewhere you have made wrong turns. Somewhere back you have made uh, bad choices that have now gotten you in this wrong place, this bad place. And and in that place we feel lost. We feel afraid. We feel disappointed. We feel sad. We feel angry. We feel shame. Across this sermon series, week by week, we've been uh, following this theme of shame and how when we make bad choices, when we take wrong turns, when we turn away from God, we end up in a place of shame. Along the way, I've been sharing some personal stories of embarrassment and shame and I've got another one for you today about being in the wrong place. Uh, This story happens late on Christmas Eve in 1997. Uh, I was on a dark, isolated back road, standing next to my broken down car. It was well before I ever owned a mobile phone. Uh, It was a long, long walk uh, for help. I didn't have any shoes. Uh, I didn't have a torch. And I was thinking... I was asking, how did I get here? What went wrong? Well, actually, lots had gone wrong. Almost every decision that I had made that day was a bad one. You see, while it was late on Christmas Eve, I was running late for a Christmas party and I was coming from a fair way out of town and I decided that I was going to take a rough back road shortcut. Quite an okay shortcut in the daytime, uh, but one not to take at night. It was a bad decision to take the shortcut at night, trying to make up time to get to this Christmas party that I was late for. That was one of my bad decisions. Another bad decision is a few kilometres before I was now stopped, I'd heard a strange clunk under the car. Now on a rough back road, you hear all kinds of clunks, and so I decided that it was a rock. I need not pull over and check it out. Just before the car stopped, the oil light flickered. And I made the bad choice of thinking, I should be right. I'd spent most of the day earlier servicing the engine, changed all the belts, changed the spark plugs, changed the oil. And so I made the bad decision, well, the light must be faulty. Everything's just been serviced. The servicing of the car was the first of my bad decisions for that day. Though I knew what I was doing, when I had taken the oil sump plug out to drain the oil out of the engine and put it back in, I only put it back in finger tight and I was going to do it up later more tightly and forgot. The clunk driving along the road was the sump plug falling out. The oil light only flickered because pretty quickly the oil went from low to completely empty and the engine seized. 
Now, every bad decision that I had made, I could easily justify. But every decision had gone against the good advice of people whom I'd trusted. I'd been told not to drive down that rough, isolated back road in the dark. I had been told, when you hear a strange clunk under the car, stop and check it out. It might be a rock, but it might not be. And I can still hear my dad's voice in my ear when the oil light flickers, stop. Every bad decision I made I could justify, but I was in trouble because I had ignored good and clear advice. Have you found yourself in trouble? Have you found yourself in the wrong place? Have you found yourself in a bad place because you ignored good and clear instructions from someone you trusted. Well, this is the story of the Bible. Last week, as Brock was preaching for us from 2 Samuel 7, we were at a high point of God's people in God's place, living under God's rule and blessing. And God made this incredible promise to King David that he would establish his kingdom forever. This week, we're at a crashing low point and Israel would be asking, how did we get here? What went so horribly wrong? Well, the answer is Solomon. Solomon is what went wrong and like a flimsy house of cards, the kingdom of Israel falls. Now things had actually looked quite good under Solomon. He looks like the promised son of David who will rule forever. Solomon is wise and just. Solomon seeks God. Solomon builds the temple in Jerusalem, the place where God's people could come and particularly know God's presence and gather together in worship of God. Other world leaders flocked to Solomon for advice and alliances. This looks good. God's people are settled in the land with worship of God centred in the temple. God's people are established as a great nation. God's people are under the blessing of a king and they are being a blessing to the world. But King Solomon fails. King Solomon fails to listen to the most important direction from God. He closes his ears off to God. While, everything, while so many other things are going so well, we see here that no amount of charisma, no amount of power or charm or enthusiasm or perseverance will sustain God's king if he ignores that sin of the garden, the sin of Adam and Eve, to think that you know better than God is at the heart of every sin. God had a clear and special instruction for the king. Turn with me back, please. Keep your finger in 1 Kings 11. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 17. It's a little bit earlier in the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 17. 
Here we see the clear and special instructions that God gives to the king. The king is to write out his very own copy of the law. The first five books of the Bible, Genesis through to Deuteronomy, the the king is to make his own copy of God's instructions. He is to have it with him all the time. He is to know it. He is to read it. He is to follow it. This is the most essential app that he has to have on his smartphone. Now have a look with me please at Deuteronomy chapter 17 verse 14. Special instructions here for the king says verse 14, when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it and you say let us set a king over us like all the nations around us be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not a brother Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the priests who are Levites. It is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees." And not consider himself better than his brothers and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. Now, is that sinking in for you? You're connecting some dots? What about for Solomon? Do you think he might have missed this bit of the Old Testament? Imagine if he was actually copying down the law as he was supposed to and this bit particularly addressed to the king. Out of everything in the whole first five books of the Old Testament, here is the bit that's directed to the king. Do you think if you're the king making a copy of this for yourself, you might have saw this in here? Could you imagine reading the Bible and it has your name on one of the pages, that, that bit would surely stand out. Has Solomon missed this bit? Does Solomon thinks it doesn't apply to him? Maybe he thinks that he knows better, that these laws, that these instructions from God are somehow outdated for him. Or maybe he interprets it in such a way that he still believes that he's still completely within it. You know, Deuteronomy says not to have too many horses. Well, how many horses are too many? How much silver and gold is excessive? How many wives are too many? Maybe Solomon might try to argue that each wife was essential to alliances and and for living out and growing that large family that God promised Isn't it so easy to massage God's clear advice to suit our own desires? To look at the good fruit on the tree 
and to think, I'll be better off with it than listening to God. That desire for what is made pulls on us more strongly than our desire for our maker. And so as we turn back into 1 Kings 11, the wealth that is here, the prosperity that is here, the fame that is here, could sound like an incredible blessing and and be God's affirmation of Solomon's kingship. But against the background of Deuteronomy 17, we see that this is an ugly picture of a king who is going the wrong way. A king who does not listen to the good instruction of the one who will give him everything that he needs. So in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 14, we see that the weight of gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents. That's about 25 tonnes of gold. He's got this gold-ornamented palace so that in verse 20, nothing like it had ever been made for any other kingdom. Verse 26, Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. Where did Solomon's horses come from? Egypt. He was not to go back to Egypt or to send any one of his people back to Egypt. Chapter 11, verse 3. Chapter 11, verse 3, he had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. Wouldn't you think that if Solomon had this clear instruction from God with him, that the more that he read it and read it and read it and read it and read it, he'd be drawn more and more to God? As he grew old... His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord, his God, as the heart of David, his father, had been. He followed the other gods. It's perfectly clear where Solomon's desire leads him. Not just to be on the fringe with God, not just to be held back a little bit in his effectiveness for serving God or being God's king, but this is a desire that turns him away from God and God away from him. You see verse 6, So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. Verse 9, The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you. Solomon is just like every other man and every other woman. Solomon is just like you and I. Solomon is just like his brothers, just like every father who has gone before him, just like his father David. 
in the video we watched uh, just before, we heard about David grasping for something that wasn't his in the story of David and Bathsheba. We read about it in, in 2 Samuel chapter 11. This was a time when the kings were at war, the nations were at war, except for David. King David stayed back in Jerusalem, just sent out his other armies. And while he was there on his own, he saw a woman bathing. Not having a a bath in some kind of seductive kind of way, we see in there that she was going through a ceremonial washing to be purified. She was following the law of God, the good law that God had given. And David saw her and David wanted to take grasp after something that wasn't his, someone who wasn't his. He'd sent a message so that Bathsheba came to him and he took her as if she was his wife. David was in the wrong place. David was in a bad place. And what he did next was to try and cover it up. He tried to bring home Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, who was off fighting the war to come and make it look like he had gotten his wife pregnant. But Uriah wouldn't be part of it. He slept outside because his other men were sleeping outside at war. When that didn't work, David sent a message back to the war to put Uriah on the front line so that when they came over under attack, everybody else was to run away and leave Uriah to be killed. And he was. It was an instruction from the chief commander to kill Uriah, his own man. It was an instruction from David to kill the husband of the woman who he had taken as his own, who shouldn't have been his. The end of 2 Samuel 7 says, The thing David had done displeased the Lord. David's story, Solomon's story, our story, is a story of grasping for what is not ours. We all fall for the temptation to grasp for what is not ours. We all fall for that temptation to think that we know better than God. That is at the heart of every sin. We grasp after the things that we think will satisfy, but it does not satisfy. It does not draw us deeper into God's blessing, but we are left hiding in shame. We are left fumbling to cover it over with flimsy fig leaves and further decisions that are wrong and bad. It's David's story, it's Solomon's story, it's our story. What we do need is a new story. We need a new son of David, not Solomon. We need a new king who will always trust God. We need a new story and a new son of David, a king who will listen to God. A king who will lead us perfectly under God's rule and blessing. 
Will you please turn over to Matthew's Gospel, the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. We're jumping across here most uh, weeks as we do this Bible overview. Matthew chapter 1 begins with what could seem like a dull genealogy. But look at verse 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. There's this realisation here that Jesus could be the promised son of Abraham. Jesus could be the one, the offspring of Abraham, through whom the whole world is blessed, and Jesus could be the promised son of David. After years of failed leadership by Israel's king, we're used to seeing failure. We're used to seeing kings who look the part but prove that they aren't. Is there something different about Jesus? Will he know and follow the good instruction of God? Well, turn over please to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Jesus is tempted to grasp after things. Jesus is tempted to put himself in a position where he knows better than his father. How does Jesus respond? Verse 4, verse 7, verse 10, by quoting from the Old Testament, by quoting from the Word of God, by quoting from the law of God, the instruction of God, by quoting from Deuteronomy. He knew the law, he wrote down the law, he had the law with him. Turn over, please, to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Jesus here is being cross-examined by the religious lawyers, the Pharisees, those who were experts in the law. We're not going to read out all these verses, but just so that you can eyeball them and know where we are in Matthew's Gospel and in Jesus' life, Jesus perfectly integrates God's laws into his life and mission. He knows God's good, clear instruction. Will he walk in it? Or will he walk in the ways of Solomon? We see in verse 42 there of chapter 12, verse 42, Jesus announces that he is the one who is greater than Solomon. You see, where Solomon gives in, Jesus gives up where Solomon and all his fathers and sons after him grasp for what is not theirs, Jesus gives for the sake of others. Jesus is fully driven by a desire for pleasing his Father. Turn over, please, to Matthew 26. Matthew 26. This is now after Jesus has been arrested, he's on trial... His crucifixion and death are looming. Matthew chapter 26, verse 63. Jesus says, well, first of all, the high priest asks Jesus a question in uh, verse 63. The high priest says to Jesus, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, 
the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. There is absolutely no doubt about who Jesus knows himself to be and who Jesus wants the world to know that he is and his actions match up to it. Jesus is God's King who brings the eternal kingdom of rule and blessing. And Jesus invites the whole world, Jesus invites you and I to bring our lives under his rule and blessing. He offers us a new story, a new story of freedom and blessing, a story where sin is dealt with, a story where shame is dealt with. Jesus meets us in the wrong place and brings us home. Jesus meets us in those bad places and says, it'll be okay. And there's nothing better in the world than that. To be invited to have our lives under the rule and blessing of King Jesus. That's where we want to be. And that's where we want to stay. We we want to be like Jesus. We don't want to be like Solomon. We don't want to be like David. We want to be a people who know Jesus' rule and blessing and live in it and live under it. That's why knowing the Bible is so, so important. Can you please turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3? 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to put it on the screen as well. But when we neglect God's instructions, when we don't read them, when we don't meditate on them, we start to imagine that what we will not do, we actually drift towards it. We start to accommodate it. We start to make excuses for it. To reason that it's not okay. You see, it's not enough to know God's ways by just having a big Bible as a prop. It's not enough to just have a big Bible on your shelf or under your bed or to have a memory of some big Bible lessons or stories from your childhood or from this morning. We need the Bible as an essential app that holds our day and our life together. The app that when it crashes, that is a big problem for us. The app that we need every day. The app that we need to most open. The app even that we are addicted to. The app that most affects our thoughts and our attitude and our behaviour and our desires and our priorities. Let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. The Apostle Paul is writing to his disciple leader of the church, Timothy. He says, As for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, 
which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You see, the Bible is not just for those who are going to be Bible experts or religious experts or Bible teachers or preachers or ministers or Sunday school teachers or Bible study leaders. The Bible is for all of us to equip us for living under Jesus' rule and blessing. It is God's breathing out to us of His ways. So that as we read it, and read it, and read it, as we meditate on it, as we reflect on it, as we make it a big part of our life, it is like God breathing on the back of our necks to remind us of His good way, to remind us of His blessing, to remind us of the freedom of living under the rule of Jesus, to remind us that He has covered over our sin and shame with His righteousness, to remind us that when we are in the wrong place, that we are, when we are in the bad place, that he will welcome us home and lift us back on the track and steer us along in living under his blessing and rule. We need a new story. We need the new son of David. We need... King Jesus, who always trusts God. We need King Jesus leading us, who always listens to God. We need King Jesus leading us under God's rule and blessing that we might know and enjoy being God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing.